pray together, shall we? And so, Father, what a wonder it is that, uh, that you have this marvelous plan where you sent your only Son to substitute into our place. And in all reality, God died for us. Thank you, Father, for your faithful love and kindness for your church and for your people. Thank you for the great gospel that transforms our lives and makes us into new creation. Thank you for our Bibles, Lord, and as we reach for them and open them and as we um, have the message today, I trust that our quiet listening and our humble hearts will be part of our worship today. That just sitting still to listen to your word in this busy world would be so used of you. Refresh your church. Challenge us, encourage us, help us to think clearly. Um, May your Holy Spirit be able to take the word today as he does so often and make your will clear in our lives through the word of God that we would walk in your way. We commit ourselves to you now in a new way. We ask for you to speak to us through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you can remember uh, uh, specific times I can think of multiple times in my life where you've had that kind of a moment where God just got a hold of your heart. He just kind of opened up your mind and and clarified for you in some kind of a defining moment what it meant to live for Jesus. For some of you, you may have already known Christ and and you've been to the cross, your sin is forgiven, you know what it is to experience the substitutionary death of Christ. That is, that instead of paying the penalty for your own sin because the wages of sin is death, you've acknowledged and recognized that what God's Word teaches so clearly is that at the cross, God does for us what we can't do for ourselves, Jesus substitutes in. And He takes our sin upon Himself. And you've been there and you've accepted this gift of salvation by faith through His grace. And you know that it has changed your life. But then somewhere down the road, uh, maybe in a time of of a message or a time at, at camp or just somehow, God just got a hold of your life and... And bam, you made a decision and you were never quite the same after that defining moment. For others, maybe you've not been there yet. Maybe that defining moment needs to happen even today at the foot of the cross. And, and for the first time in your life, you need to realize that you are a sinner and you re- realize you can do nothing to save yourself, but that God, out of His love and kindness, gave Jesus Christ to take your place and to give you that free gift of salvation. And maybe that defining moment um, is yet to come in your life and you'll be at the foot of the cross and you will realize all of a sudden who Jesus is and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So I think, I'm thinking even on a double track today, that defining moment of, of salvation where the lights turn on and you realize who God is through Christ and what He's done for you and you're born again. And I'm also thinking of those of us who maybe we're just um, asleep at the wheel and we're taking our salvation for granted and, or God's been working in our hearts and, and then there's that defining moment. You know, these moments happened in Scripture. I'm thinking about a conversion moment where the lights turned on and a man who was far from God became an incredibly powerful preacher and follower of Christ. That would be Saul of Tarsus, wouldn't it? 
He was a, a missionary of destruction. He went around the world trying to wreak havoc on God's people. He, he was, in fact, had a whole list of Christians uh, and was on his way to a place called Damascus. Uh, and on the road to Damascus, he was on his way there to slit throats of Christians. There's not much new under the sun. And, and God just got a hold of him. All of a sudden, a bright light, remember? He fell to the ground. He had three days of utter blindness. God spoke to him. Christ, he saw Christ in a vision. And, and, and Christ said to him right there on the spot, Saul, Saul, who are you persecuting? Wake up. He said, I have chosen you for a specific task and you are going to become my messenger from today on. And of course, he changed his name to Paul. He's the mighty apostle Paul. It's part of his testimony. It's repeated that testimony is, by the way, at least three times in Scripture. And uh, the apostle Paul wrote much of our New Testament. More than any other single author, he wrote the most of the New Testament. We have other defining moments where God got a hold of people in Scripture recounted for us. Um, I'm thinking of perhaps one of the most uh, famous Bible stories of all times. I'm thinking of Jonah fleeing from the presence of the Lord. There's a man who was God's man who decided he didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. Do you know that feeling? And he was running from God. And uh, you know the, how the story goes, right? God created a large fish. The storm comes up. He's on the ship heading the opposite direction of God's will in his life. They pitch him overboard into the sea. The large fish swallows him. And there in the depths of the belly of the fish, in the depths of the sea, God got a hold of him in a very life-defining way. I mean, Moses, perhaps um, the greatest prophet in the Old Testament and God's man leading Israel, he's 40 years out in his father-in-law's uh, fields herding sheep, right? And and for 40 years, every day, he did the same thing. You know, he made a peanut butter sandwich, grabbed his staff, and went and watched sheep all day. And, and then all of a sudden, one day, he looks over, and that bush was on fire, right? And he walks over, and God basically says to him, Moses, get your stinking shoes off. You're on holy ground. And today, nothing is going to be the same after this. Because I want you, and I am redefining your life. And that redefining of life is exactly what we find in Matthew's testimony, in Matthew's gospel in chapter 9, as we continue our sermon series in Matthew's gospel. If you're new to us, what we do here at Fellowship Bible Church is we preach through books of the Bible. And right now we're going through the gospel of Matthew, and we just kind of take our time. Sometimes we meander, sometimes we take bigger chunks. And today we have the autobiographical testimony of the author Matthew. You do know, class, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, right? Say Matthew. <laughs> and so Matthew's writing about himself, and we're in chapter 9, and our text today is 9 through 13. And I want you to see that Jesus is going to come along, and he's going to redefine Matthew's entire life. I want to warn you today that it is possible that God wants to redefine your life. I, w I want to caution you that it is possible that like Matthew, and, and we're going to surmise and assume, and we'll talk about it in a minute, that God's been at work in Matthew's heart. And then one day Jesus looks at him and he says, come follow me. And from then on, nothing was the same. 
I don't know if you're a follower of Christ or not, and maybe today is your day to become a follower of Christ as the Lord Jesus still calls people to follow Him today in salvation and come to the cross and be saved and redefine your life in salvation and become a child of God and get rid of the burden of your sin. Be seated in the heavenlies and have the great hope of heaven as yours. And others of you have been a believer for a long time and God is going to redefine your life through Matthew's testimony. Let's read our text. It's Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, beginning with verse 9. And as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when he, that would be Jesus, heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It is interesting as we read the Gospels and uh, we realize that there's, you know, parallel accounts, especially in the Synoptic Gospels. That's Matthew and Mark and Luke. John stands alone a little bit differently than the three other Gospels. And we reminded ourselves last week or two weeks ago that um, as we're studying Matthew, which is the most extensive of the Gospels, Matthew is a little bit less concerned about chronology and he has things that pop up here and there that are a little bit out of order from Mark and Luke and uh, they maybe were working a little harder on a on more of a timeline account of the life and ministry and activities of Christ. But remember that Matthew, his whole purpose as an author, is he's making a presentation of Jesus, the King, the Master of the universe. He's less concerned about the order of events, and he's more concerned that his listeners understand this is who he is. He's the King. He's Jesus the King. He's the Master and Ruler of the universe. But when we look at our Gospels, it is interesting to me, just kind of a little detail here, that two weeks ago when we entered chapter 9, we had this great miracle of the four friends who lowered their buddy down through the roof. Everybody ought to have at least four friends trying to get them to Jesus all the time, don't you think? Just kind of hold your feet to the fire. You ought to have at least four friends that are always trying to get you to Jesus. That'll just strengthen your life. Now, we had that account, and it is interesting to notice that in the Gospels, as Mark in chapter 2 and as Luke in chapter 5 present this testimony of the calling of Matthew to become a disciple of Jesus, that all of them place it immediately following uh, the miracle of the healing of the paralytic who was lowered through the roof. And so when we look at verse 9 in chapter 9 of our text, and Jesus passed on from there, uh, we assume that it evidently happened after he left that house and had the healing of the guy who was paralyzed said take up your bed and walk and then when they questioned him said well if you think it's a big deal to tell somebody that it started with him saying your sin is forgiven and then the pharisees were all caught up and upset about that and jesus looks at him remember and says if you think it's a big deal to tell somebody their sin is forgiven how about this Take up your bed and walk. And a shriveled up lame man, probably paralyzed from the neck down, got up, rolled up his bed and walked out of there. He's the king. He's the master of the universe. 
What a, what a shameful thing to have Jesus right in front of you like the Pharisees and not realize that he's the king. Does that sound familiar to anybody in here? Jesus has been right in front of you. Maybe your grandmother's been talking about Jesus or your mom or your dad or your youth pastor's been talking about Jesus and King Jesus is right in front of you and, and you don't care. In fact, he just kind of upsets you with all the things that he does. And you don't even maybe want to hear more about Jesus. I just am calling you to see Jesus. He's the king of the universe. The master of the universe. Make him master of your life today. What I want to do is take a minute and I want to read Luke's account. And then I want you to do like we've been doing uh, regularly. Is I want you to just kind of stick your pencil or your bulletin in there. And we'll flip back and forth a little bit. I will mainly refer to Matthew's text as our outline unfolds. But I think you'll find it helpful because once again, uh, even though Matthew is the most extensive of the Gospels, what he's going to do is he's going to give us a little bit less detail And perhaps indicative of his humility and and almost like, well, I've got to include this because it's part of the whole story. It's his own personal testimony, so he minimizes it. But Luke and Mark amplify it just a little bit. And let's use Mark to gain just a little more insight, okay? Um, Luke chapter 5 You'll see there the healing of the paralytic at verse 17 and on. And then at verse 27, we have the calling of Levi. Now, Matthew was called by two names. He was Matthew and he was Levi. That's the same person. Don't let that fool you. And Luke writes this account of Matthew's testimony of conversion and following Christ. He says in verse 27, Luke chapter 5, After this, he went out and he saw, that's Jesus, went out, and he saw a tax collector named Levi, that's Matthew, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Here's an interesting aspect. Luke adds, and leaving everything. And leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. And Levi made him a great feast. Here's another detail Matthew or Luke adds. And, and Levi made him a great feast in his house. So we didn't pick that up. Matthew didn't tell us in Matthew's account, his autobiographical account, that he went to his own house. That he's the one who prepared the feast. And there was a large company of tax collectors. And Luke says, others. We know that they were sinners according to Matthew's account, and as well as the judgmental remarks of the Pharisees and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And here it says, And Jesus answered them. You see, the. you ever do that? You're upset with somebody over here, so you say really loud to this person over here what you want this person over here to say, to hear? And I think that's what's going on a little bit. Why do you do this? This is very irritating. We do not associate with these kind of people. You're going to have a bad reputation hanging out with these people. And so he asked the disciples, the Pharisees do in a loud voice. And Jesus pipes up from over here and notice what he says. Verse 31 of Luke 5. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He adds the words repentance. I'd like to break our outline down into three parts as we take a look at this passage. The first thing I want us to notice 
And I'm going to mainly look at Matthew's text. Is this unlikely choice that Jesus makes. Point number one, I want us to observe, number one, an unpredictable selection. An unpredictable selection. Notice what it says. And Jesus passed from there. He saw a man sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Now, at first glance, in our eyes, in our way of thinking, that's not that big of a deal. We also, many of us know the story so well that we forget how despicable tax collectors were in this era, in this time, and in this place. In fact, they were so guilty of an extortion-like system of collecting taxes that people had to give up enough money, and we always resent paying taxes, at least, I mean... I guess there's people out there that want to pay more taxes. I don't really get them. I think they're the same ones that send money to public radio or something. But it's like, why would you want to pay more taxes? And so it's like, if you send money to public radio, don't leave our church, all right? It's, it's cool. Go ahead. You know, I don't, I don't know. I just don't get people that think we don't pay enough taxes. I mean, in this era, you need to understand that not only was Matthew a tax collector, and so he's like, he's like the IRS sitting at a booth on your sidewalk, always watching you, and so you just, he drives you crazy. But he's more than that. Israel at this time is, is an occupied country, and they are under the watch of Rome. And so they don't have their own leader at this time. It's why later in the Gospels, when we get to Palm Sunday, for example, and Jesus is coming to town, what are they screaming for? They're longing for what? A king. Someone to set them free. Free from what? Sin? No, they don't get that yet. Free from the occupiers of Rome. And you know some of the names. So they had Caesar. They were all obligated to Caesar. And they had broken down uh, the, the land of Israel into parts and sections, and so they had governors over this area. Pilate is a familiar name. They all worked for Rome. They had Roman soldiers in garrisons and centurions who were around for law enforcement. They had the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the, of the Jews, in their hip pocket. And they were smart enough, Rome was, to get the religious leaders to manipulate the public so that keeping peace was easier. But people resented this. They resented that they were an occupied country and they resented the fact that they had to pay money and taxes that went to Rome. Now here's how Rome did this. They would contract out these subcontractors to the government to collect taxes. It is likely, uh, as people look at this system, it is likely that some of the very leaders of the Jews and the Jewish people themselves got the contract from Rome to collect the taxes. So it, you have to understand that paying taxes in this day was not like paying taxes today. We have, we have been schnookered out of our tax money in a really slick way, right? We don't, we don't really feel it that much. I mean, we look at our receipts sometime and we see that we paid $1.19 more than what the item cost, but oh well, that's just... And we don't realize or really feel the weight of getting up and going to work starting in January and working till almost the 1st of June before we ever get to keep one of our own dollars. That's how much taxes we have to pay in a year. 
But in this era and in this day, you felt it because the guy is sitting in a booth out on the sidewalk collecting from you. And he would keep track of you if you ignored him. But back to how this worked, some of these leading Jewish officials would, would contract with Rome. And this is how Rome worked the system. And, and these guys would get rich by owning the tax collection business. And then they would have a whole region that they were responsible to pay Rome. For which to pay Rome for the taxes of an entire region. They would then break down their region into subgroups. And those subgroups would have like a regional director. And then the regional director would appoint these local neighborhood tax collectors. Of whom Matthew was probably one of that level guy. He was like the sidewalk level tax collector guy. So... The way they made their money is also part of the thing that graded the public so much. Rome expected and had a certain tax level. And they told the guy who was over in Israel, who was in charge of taxation, you have to pay me this many times a year, this much money, that's it. And you pretty much can get it however you want to get it. He then would break down, go to his regional leaders and tell the regional leaders. And lots of times the public didn't even know who it was that was getting rich. And it was probably some of these hypocritical, it could have even been hypocritical Pharisees that got a cut of the tax money. But the way they made their money then was by overcharging for taxation. See, they had to give so many dollars to Rome and then to pay themselves, they had to charge that much extra. And then to pay their regional directors, they had to pay that much extra. And then guys like Matthew had to try to charge a little bit extra, and that's what they got to keep after they passed off the rest. And so everyone knew the system was corrupt, and everyone knew that they were being overcharged, but the deal is, Rome enforced it in such a way that they allowed them to do that, and there was really nothing you could do. I mean, if you got in the tax collector's face, there's a Roman soldier standing down on the sidewalk, and the tax collector would just look down there, and the Roman soldier put his hand on his sword, and then you back off, and you just pay your taxes. And so they were being strong-armed. It was a coercion. It was an extortionist-type deal. And the reason they would use local neighborhood-level tax collectors like Matthew is because he knew everybody in the community. He was a Jew himself. So that's another reason. A, everybody hated paying taxes. B, they couldn't stand this tax collector because he was one of them who was working for Rome. So we can't stand him for that either. Thirdly, he's overcharging us. And in fact, my money is holy in the mind of a, of a Jewish man. His money's holy and he has so much money he wants to give to the Lord, but now he's giving it to Rome. And so therefore it desecrates his money. And so they would talk, a Jewish man would talk about the tax collector at the same level of an unclean pig or a swine. They were considered the same level as a swine. But Matthew must have loved money so much that he was willing to sit in his neighborhood and collect taxes for his region. And he knew everybody. He knew whose uncle owned what property. He knew which neighborhood owned which houses. And so Rome even gave them an authority to pry into people's business. And a tax collector of this day could actually open your mail and check your mail before you did to see if you had any under the table businesses going on so they could tax you for that. I say all of that for the whole point of, of recognizing that Matthew is not a popular man in his community. That Matthew is a tax collector. The word in the New Testament for this tax collector who worked for Rome was publican. 
Now, for some of you who've read your Gospels in your New Testament a little bit, what comes to your mind when you hear the phrase publican and what's the next one? Sinners, right? Because they're often linked together. When you want to describe somebody that's at the bottom of the social level and you want to describe somebody that's as bad as they get, you say they are publicans and sinners. And so we, we have our first point of our text. Bouncing out of our text is point number one, this, this most unlikely, unpredictable selection that Jesus makes. He's despised by the community. He's known to be dishonest. And Jesus looks over, and they make eye contact, and Jesus says, Matthew, come follow me. He's sitting in his tax booth, and he gets up, and he leaves. Now, I would assume, and I'm going to make an assumption now, it's not in the text, but don't you think it makes sense that Matthew must have heard about Jesus Don't you think he's been watching from his tax booth as this guy's been around Capernaum, this station for his adult life ministries? I said a few weeks ago that was the place of his boyhood growing up. He grew up in Nazareth, but Capernaum is identified as kind of his adult station, his home base, especially earlier in his ministry. And Matthew's sitting in his tax booth. He hears the talk on the street. He knows everything that's going on. It is possible, it is possible that Matthew has even heard Jesus lecturing and has heard parts of the Sermon on the Mount even. And he knows that his righteousness must surpass that of a Pharisee. It is possible, I'm surmising now, it's not in the text, but just knowing what it takes to stand up and leave your booth and follow Jesus Don't you think it's possible that Matthew sat there some days very sick and tired of who he was? Don't you think Matthew sat there sometimes thinking to himself, I have got to get a new life. This life isn't working. And somehow there were cracks in the core value system of his life and he recognized that he did not have it together. Have you ever been there? And Jesus looks at him then, and Jesus says, come and follow me. And he says to himself, that's it. Right now is the time. Number one, we have this unpredictable selection. We move into the next verse, verse 10, and we see that Jesus has reclined at table in the house, and many tax collectors and sinners are there. We pointed out in verse 29 that this is of Luke 5, that this is Matthew's house, and that Matthew has fixed the feast, prepared the dinner, and that there was a large company of tax collectors and sinners. And what we have here is this unlikely gathering. We have, number two, an unacceptable collection of people. This unlikely, unacceptable collection of people. Not only are they tax collectors, but it says, and there were sinners among them. That's all it says. So if we were checking the place out and we're looking through the window and we say, oh, it's a bunch of tax collectors, a bunch of publicans. And look at that. There's a bunch of sinners there. It had to be people to be identified as a sinner. It had to be people who were publicly known for their sin. That guy over there. And that girl over there. And that guy. I don't know where he gets his money and he's got a yacht down on Lake Galilee, but man, oh man, there's something really fishy about that guy. And 
a bunch of his friends have just disappeared as well. And that girl over there, <laughs> sinners. And that's how the Pharisees are seeing this. What in the world is Jesus doing in the house with sinners and publicans? Well, he's having a feast. Now, I want to point something out. It has been a real popular phrase, and I think the reason I'm pointing this out is less because it's in the Bible and more because it's just a personal irritant of Pastor Van. Um, But I have noticed that there is a popular phrase among evangelical authors and cool pastors, and I don't know who a cool pastor is. I'm pretty cool because I have a smartphone now. But um, um, it took a long time, but I'm there, you know. Um, to say Jesus partied with sinners. Hey man, Jesus parties with sinners, so we need to party with sinners. Well, what does that communicate? You think Jesus is there with his hand on the neck of a bottle holding, yeah, man, bring me another one. Let's party. Jesus is partying. Turn up the music. We're partying. I don't think that's it at all. The whole point of the passage, as we're going to see in a second, is not that he was there to party, but he was there to call them to repentance, it says in Luke. Call them to repentance. And so I want you to be careful to recognize that Jesus isn't there just uh, slugging them down, cranking the music. Holy grace, man, it's not a work system. Quit being a legalist. Party, party with Jesus. That's utter nonsense. And let me explain what Jesus was doing there. It's point three, because it, it, it comes out in number three, the unavoidable question. The unavoidable question. And it is from the Pharisees, and it is, what in the world are you doing in a place like this with people like this? All right, let's read back. We're in Matthew 9. They asked their question very loudly to the disciples in the end of verse 11. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Okay, there's this really undesirable collection of people here, and we cannot believe that you are there. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and cleaners? There it is. It's the unavoidable question in the context of the passage. But when Jesus heard it, he said, he answers, first of all, number one, with a logical illustration, a logical illustration. I'm here, and you can almost read between the lines, I'm here not to party But I am here because those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. It's a very simple, straightforward, logical explanation. If you are a physician or a doctor, a medical doctor, who do you hang with? Do you put up your sign and open up your office so that well people will come hang out with you? No, you need sick people to come to you to exercise your craft. And if you are the forgiver of sin of the universe, do you hang out with righteous people who don't think they need forgiven? Or do you hang out with broken sinners who need forgiveness? If you're a doctor, you hang out with sick people. And if you're a forgiver, you hang out with those who need forgiven. That's the whole point. They're broken. They're sick. At the end of the phrase, he says, the end of the passage, for I came not to call righteous, but sinners. There is one reason Jesus is at the dinner. It is because Jesus loves sinners. And he wants to make them whole. And he actually wants them to stop their stupid partying. And all of the destructive behaviors 
that go on at parties. He does not want to identify with it as a cool Christian. He wants to transform their lives. How, by the way, did all these people get there? Well, Matthew invited them to his house. And the reason there was a large number of tax collectors is because the tax collectors were buddies with each other. Nobody else wanted him to hang out, so they hung out with each other. And he found Jesus, and Jesus was changing his life. And so he rounds them all up, and he says, Come to my house for dinner, and a whole bunch of other sinners show up as well. The unavoidable question of why Jesus is there is answered, first of all, with a logical illustration. A physician needs sick people to exercise his craft. A forgiver needs sinners to exercise his craft. But he goes on then, and secondly, Jesus answers with a biblical quotation. A biblical quotation. Now, hidden in the passage is a familiar phrase to Matthew's listeners, but not to us. But students of the Bible and students of this culture uh, point out that when Jesus says to them, okay, so let your eyes look at verse 13. At the end of verse 12 of Matthew chapter 9, Jesus has answered with a logical illustration. The doctor and the sick, the forgiver and the need for forgiveness. Secondly, he does a biblical quotation and he says this phrase, go and learn what this means. And then he quotes scripture. So he's telling them, you guys, go and learn what this means. Quote, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And he finishes it with, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So if you lived in this era, you would probably recognize that the rabbis often in their teaching would use that phrase when somebody asked a dumb question. Now, teachers always tell us there's no such thing as a dumb question. But teachers always think in their head, that's the dumbest question I ever heard. <laughs> oh, there's no such thing as a dumb question. Ask your question. No, that's the dumbest question I ever heard. And if they got that kind of question, a rabbi would say to that student, he would say, you go and learn what this means. And then he would quote a proverb or something, and then they would be assigned to go meditate on that and figure out their answer. And so in a way, it's a poke in the eye to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are hanging around because Jesus says to them, that's the dumbest question I ever heard. You go and learn what this means. That familiar rabbinic phrase to the student, go and learn what this means. And then he quotes Hosea 6.6. 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What does that mean? I, God says, desire mercy, but not sacrifice. Now to the listener of this era, he would understand better as well. We don't use the sacrificial system. We revel in the ultimate sacrifice of the Lord Jesus as the substitutionary lamb who shed his blood for our sin on the cross. So we do worship around a substitutionary sacrificial system, but we don't understand it like these listeners who regularly brought doves or lambs or a calf as an offering that was killed and the blood flowed and these sacrifices. Here's what Jesus is talking about. What Hosea is quoting and what the prophet of old was what God was saying through the prophet was, listen, I don't desire just a bunch of bloody animals in worship. In other words, I don't desire the trappings of worship. I'm looking at the heart of worship. 
So I don't need more blood to flow in animals. I need your heart to be filled with mercy. In other words, it was a message to the Pharisees who thought they were righteous, but they really weren't, but couldn't see their own need. But they despised these pitiful, broken sinners and tax collectors whom Jesus loved and was ministering to. But the Pharisees are saying, well, we do sacrifices. Yeah, but you have no mercy in your heart. You see, you're all about externals. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Remember how they could pray on the street corners? Remember how they could smear their face with ashes and mess up their hair and tear their clothing when they were fasting so that everybody knew how religious they were? And God is, God is sickened at that because he looks at the heart and he finds out that there's nothing right in the heart. It reminds me of the Old Testament story, one of my favorite stories in 1 Samuel, when King Saul, the first king of Israel, disobeys God's command to wipe out the Amalekites in their entirety as a burnt offering unto the Lord. God's wrath and timeline had run out on the Amalekites. The wages of sin is always death. And God's timeline had run out on the Amalekites, just like God's timeline runs out on every single human being, even today. And ultimately, the wages of our sin is death. That's why we need Jesus to intercept the system so that he dies for us and we don't have to die for ourselves. But God told Saul to wipe out the Amalekites. And what did Saul do? Remember, he kept the king, put him in a cage, paraded him around in a big parade. And he kept all the lambs and the calves. And I always love to quote the King James on this because Samuel, God's man, his prophet, comes up to King Saul and he says, have you carried out the instruction of the Lord? And Saul says, indeed I did to a T. Everything's good. And Samuel holds still for a minute, tilts his head. And in King James lingo says, then what meaneth thou the bleeding of sheep in mine ear? If you've carried out the instruction of the Lord, why do I hear all of the Amalekite sheep and calves bawling for their mothers? And Saul says, King Saul says, oh, that, that, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Let me explain that. What that is, is we brought those to sacrifice to the Lord. Samuel, that's a great idea, don't you think? We were thinking about God. No, you weren't, you sorry dog. In your heart, what you were thinking about was all of the sheep and calves that you have home in your own farms and pens that you now do not have to sacrifice in worship and you can take them to the market and make money and you'll take the Amalekite sheep and calves and offer those before the Lord so that you got free worship. You're going to worship costing yourself nothing. And Samuel looks at him and taps him in the chest and said, God is through with you, buddy. It's over. And do you remember what he says through God? God says this through Samuel. Does God desire burnt offerings over obedience? Does God really care about these sacrifices if you're disobedient in your heart, if you're hard-hearted and there's no mercy towards your fellow man? You see, the Bible is clear and in, our New, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might and love your neighbor as yourself. And, and, and like in the epistle of 1 John even, one of the ways we prove our love for God is our love for our fellow man. And what Jesus is pointing out to the Pharisees in this passage, you need to go think about this. Go and learn what this means. God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I do not, I do not care, God says, about the ritual of worship if your heart is not right. 
You can wave your hands. You can sing as loud as you want. You can dress up. You can do whatever you want. You can do any kind of worship you want, any style of worship you want. But if your heart isn't right and you're not merciful in your heart towards God and man, God, God doesn't want it. So Jesus uses this biblical quotation to confront them. And he says, concluding then, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You want to know why I'm here? I came to seek and to save that which was lost. I came to rescue people who were stuck in the mire and they couldn't get themselves out. And you Pharisees, he would say, you think you're not stuck in the mire. And that's why you think you don't need pulled out. But you're stuck deeper than anybody. Remember how we say regularly, only broken, humble people come to Jesus. If you're proud today, if you're arrogant, if you're self-sufficient, you're, you're caustic, you will never find Jesus today. Only broken, humble people come to Jesus. Here's how I want to wrap up our message for the last few minutes. We have this most interesting testimony of Matthew and how Jesus ends up eating with sinners at his house. I am just so struck with that moment, that moment of decision, that defining, life-altering, redefining moment when Matthew got out of his booth and followed Jesus. And I'm thinking to myself, there might be people here today that need to get out of their booth and follow Jesus. Some need to go to the cross for salvation. Some need to go where it is God's been at work in your heart. And so I was just meditating on what was going on in Matthew and what do we learn about Matthew's decision. The title of our message today is Burning Bridges Following Jesus. Isn't that what Matthew did? Matthew got up and he burned his bridge and he followed Jesus. It made me think of a moment I hadn't thought of for quite a while. I was in about eighth grade and I was at camp. We used to do camp quite a bit up in Michigan and we love camp and whole week of junior high camp and the speakers have been good and some of you've been there you know and it's Friday night of teen camp and and they got all these junior high kids and we've had a great week and none of us want to go home we just want to spend the whole summer at camp and oh man it's Friday night and tomorrow we have to go back home and and you just it's just felt good to have the messages and you're just right with God and camp you're just on the mountaintop even as a kid you know and you want to do right and and it's Friday night and the counselors have us gathered around the campfire area and I can take and show you right where this is at Christie Lake and they have the bonfire going and and one of the counselors has rigged up a couple blocks of firewood and they found a plank and some boards and they've built a bridge and as they introduce the testimony time, and we've, we've been singing and, and sharing a little bit, and now it's time for the kids, the campers, to talk about what God's been doing in their lives that week. And the counselor gives direction. We want you to come over here, and we want you to walk across this bridge, and then come here and give your testimony, and then go back to your place. And that's what we started doing, you know. And you walk across the bridge, and you give your testimony in front of the group in your eighth grade way. You know, I want to live for Jesus. I'm going to go home, and I'm going to be nice to my mom when she asks me to take out the trash. And, and I'm just going to live for Jesus. I want to pray for me. I want to live for Jesus. And everybody claps, and then the next kid walks across the bridge. And then when it's finally over the counselor walks over and he he picks up the plank and he takes it and he throws it in the fire and it's real quiet or we sing i have decided to follow jesus no turning back no turning back 
The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. And we watched the bridge burn that we all walked across, symbolizing leaving the old ways behind in our eighth grade year and following Jesus now in a whole new way. And I'm going to live for Jesus. And I think that's what Matthew did. He got out of his booth and he turned around and he lit the thing on fire. Not really. But he just lit it on fire and the booth was gone and he's following Jesus and the bridge, there's no bridge back. Some observations about Matthew's life-defining decision. First of all, I observe in Matthew, number one, and I'll go very quickly with these, just listen and let the Spirit of God speak to you. In responding to Christ's call on my life, number one, it is unrelated to my present identity and circumstances. It is largely unrelated to my present identity and circumstances. In other words, Jesus calls all kinds of people from all walks of life at all different times in their lives. You don't have to get your act together when Jesus looks at you and says, come follow me. Especially when he says, come follow me to the cross and let me take your sin upon myself. You need to go right now and follow Jesus in your heart and lay down your sin at the cross And some of us, we're thinking in in the level of discipleship thinking as well. We think, if only I can get my life circumstances a little bit differently, I know that God's been calling me, and then I'm going to follow Jesus. Number one, Matthew, Matthew was probably at the worst possible moment of his life to follow Jesus. And he got up and followed Jesus. Number two, I think, and this is my surmising and assumptions, it begins with a conviction in your heart that won't be appeased in any other way. Following Jesus in this bridge-burning way, begins with a conviction in your heart that will not be appeased in any other way. And some of you know exactly what that feels like because you wrestle with it all the time. And you're afraid to leave the booth. God has been at work. You've been hearing Jesus. You've been listening to His teaching. You've been walking with Jesus at a certain level, but you always keep running back to your little booth. And you're afraid to get out of your booth and go. Number three... Like Matthew, I think for us to follow Christ's calling and redefine our lives with a calling, it always comes with a cost. Did you notice in Luke's account, you don't have to turn there, but in Luke 5, 28, Luke added, when Jesus said to Matthew, follow me, it says in verse 28, and leaving everything, he followed him. There's a cost There's a cost. Matthew would never get rehired in that job. Never. I was with a couple from our church earlier this week, and they were talking about years ago when they were when Christ was getting a hold of their hearts, and the the wife had a job with a company that was quite reputable, and the husband had come to a place in his life, they were young. And the husband looked at her, and and actually, it was a part of their life. They weren't even married yet, but they were very serious in their relationship. And he had gotten gotten saved, and he looked at his wife, and he said, You need to know, and at his fiancée, you need to know that I am going to follow Christ no matter what. And she said she had just a little while to think about it, and then she decided, I'm going with you. And she left her job in the middle of a contract and they knew that, and her friends told her when she left, you will never get hired by this company again. So he's following Jesus and I'm following him and I'm going to follow Jesus too. And they had a great story that was 40 years ago. 
And I thought it was interesting how it fit what I had been thinking about. Paul said in Philippians 3, 7 and 8, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Philippians 3, 7 and 8. Number four, following Jesus in this life-redefining way means leaving the old ways behind. It's closely related to number three. Number four, it means leaving the old ways behind. Matthew never went back to the tax booth. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone be in Christ, it's a new creation. The old is gone, new has come. Whole new value system. A whole new way of life. Matthew went from being fairly wealthy businessman, as lousy as the business was, to being relatively homeless. Number five, and finally, I think that when you have this kind of call on your life, even to the cross for salvation, or to follow Christ in some way for discipleship that He's been working on in your heart, it brings with it a great burden to see others come to Christ. It brings with it a great drive in you that others need to know Christ like you do. That's what Matthew did, isn't it? He left, and the first thing he did was call all of his buddies, all of his cronies, and all the sinners that he hung out with, and he said, you need Jesus the way I got Jesus. You're sick. Here's the physician. You're the disease. He's the cure, to quote another great theologian. Where are you today in following Jesus? Jesus looks at you and he says, come follow me. Man, Jesus, you don't understand. I really like my booth. I fit really well in my booth. But inside your heart, you know. You know. Now, years and years ago, when I was a youth pastor, we used to like a Stephen Curtis Chapman song. And he talked about, he would say, saddle up your horses, we got a trail to blaze. And it was a song about following Jesus no matter what. I think maybe there's people here today, A, you need to get out of your booth and you need to get to the cross and you need to humble your heart and you need to get on your knees and you need to ask God to forgive you of your sin in Christ because you can't handle it. And you need Jesus to take your sin and forgive you of your sin. B, I think there's people here and you know who you are, I don't, that God has been at work in your hearts. And I don't know what He's going to do, but God has a call for discipleship on your life to a whole new level that's going to redefine you, but you've got to get out of your booth and you can't go back. Burning bridges, following Jesus. Let's pray. So Father, would you show us how to be authentic followers of Christ. Father, would you show us how to care for sinful people in the same way Jesus did? Not embarrassed to be around low-life people, but all about caring for them in the gospel. Father, for those of us that need to get out of our booth and turn around and torch it, and follow you at a whole new level, would you give us the conviction and the courage to do that? Show us how to do that, like Matthew did. In Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen.